This is episode number 80. Denise Mueller Coronek sets world speed record, riding 183.9 miles per hour on a bicycle. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Well, I think it's a beautiful thing to know that you can go and try for absolutely anything. And I've been asked a very similar question, and this particular record is physical in, in its components. However, it's not the only part of it, which sort of negates whether it is a men's or women's record. It's a fair playing field. Hey guys, I hope that your week is off to an awesome start. And I just wanted to say a great big thank you for listening. The U.S. Thanksgiving was about a week ago. And whenever we are all thinking about the things that we're grateful for, it's common to think about our family or our friends or the roof over our heads or simply just being born where we're being born. But I am in particular grateful for the opportunity to create content and put stuff into the world to make the world a better place, to help people live more calm, more fulfilled, more inspired lives. And I wouldn't be able to do that without you. So thank you so much for listening to this show. And thank you for supporting me through this journey as well. Today's awesome episode is really unique. A woman that rode 184 miles an hour on a bicycle Denise Mueller Kornick set the world speed record. She beat every record ever by man, by woman. It doesn't matter. She's the fastest person ever on a bicycle. And how the heck do you even do that? So we'll get into that. But have you ever driven a car 184 miles an hour? I've barely driven a car over 100 miles an hour. So imagine going that speed on a bicycle. Would you be scared? I would. That's impossible, you might think. There's no way that somebody could ride a bike that fast. I had never heard of it or imagined the speed record or someone even going remotely close to that fast on a bike. It seemed like you just wouldn't be able to. So imagine my surprise in September when I met a woman who had done it. I was at Interbike. I woke up in the morning and I got a text from my husband and he had sent me a link to an article and it was about a woman who had ridden about 184 miles an hour on a bicycle. And later that day at Interbike, I was at the Primal booth and they're one of my sponsors. And one of my friends there said, hey, have you met Denise? She just broke the world speed record on a bicycle and she rode almost 184 miles an hour. And then later that day, I discovered that her hotel room was only like three doors down from mine and we kept bumping into each other. So it was a really cool and almost serendipitous meeting. And it was so cool to finally have her on the podcast. So enter Denise Mueller Kornick. On September 16th, she clocked the fastest time ever to be ridden on a bicycle, 183.932 miles per hour to be exact. She did this at Utah Bonneville Salt Flats with a very large front chain ring. Imagine how big that front chain ring must have been, drafting behind a dragster. Imagine being inches off the back of a dragster at that kind of speed. Like, I seriously can't even imagine. I'm afraid just riding in a pack going downhill on a road bike. It wasn't Denise's first world record either. The 45-year-old mother of three set the fastest female speed record in 2016 at 147.7 miles per hour. But that wasn't enough. She went back for more, and her current record is the fastest time anyone has ever ridden a bike, period. Denise is no stranger to grand achievements, though. 
As a racer in her junior days, she started collecting national champion jerseys in her closet. However, she hung up the bike nearly 20 years ago before finding it again. Inspired and fired up, she ended up training again and scoring more national championship jerseys, this time as a master's category rider. With her vision, her confidence, and her cycling fitness into the stratosphere, she set out to ride insanely fast. With the help of her coach, who also had a speed record at one point, and a female race car driver, Shay Holbrook, they did it. Twice. This conversation is super powerful. We go in deep, not only into the logistics of how to actually ride a bike that fast and what equipment and training you'd need, but we went into the psyche of fear and self-belief. And to be going so fast where you'll likely die if you make a mistake, there is an insane amount of focus and attention. I seriously hope that you guys enjoy this episode and share it with your friends. This is a super cool story and super unique. And even people that aren't cyclists might find this interesting. I mean, the woman is a Guinness Book of World Records holder. And how many of us know someone who set a world record? Not many people. I just wanted to say a big shout out to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon. I've noticed an uptick in the last couple of weeks, and it's awesome to see that kind of support coming in. Patreon's a crowdfunding website, so you can donate a few bucks a month to help the growth and support the show. Something that I've started doing with Patreon is I am now giving my patrons advance notice of who the guests are and giving the patrons an opportunity to ask a question for the guests and also get their name mentioned on the show. So today I recorded an episode. I'm about a month ahead of schedule, which is awesome, but I recorded an episode and I actually included somebody's question and their name. So I think that that's a really fun way for you guys to be more engaged with the show and get to connect personally with some of these guests. Something else that I'm committing more to now is my newsletter. So you can just go to my website and there's a pop-up that comes up. And my goal is to send out a bi-weekly newsletter with the latest podcast episodes and also some advice, some tidbit about mindset, nutrition, bike racing, logistics around taking care of your bike, I just have all these different pieces of knowledge from doing this for the last 15 years, and I just really want to give back. So please make sure that you're on that newsletter if you don't want to miss out on all of the awesomeness that I'm going to try to put out there. And last but not least, the Plant Power Tribe is waiting for you. It's a free Facebook group. Everyone is welcome. It's a place where people just talk about healthy habits in their lives. You don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to be a vegetarian. You just have to be interested in adding in healthy foods and also just sharing your stories with people. I mean, especially around the holidays, it's really easy to get off track. It's really easy to get sucked into the parties and the booze and the cookies. I know that I certainly get sucked into that. So surrounding yourself with a group of like-minded people who can help us stay accountable and help us stay true to what we really want is amazing. So go to Facebook and join the Plant Power Tribe with Sonia Looney. Just type it in. And also on Instagram, it's at Plant Power Tribe. So we will see you there. All right, let's get into this awesome episode. I still can't believe it's episode 80 with Denise. And again, if you love it, share it with your friends, post a screenshot, and we'll see you on social media. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Denise. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. This is so fun. I was at Interbike and that morning, my husband sent me a text saying, you got to check out this awesome woman who beat the land speed record on a bike. And I was like, what? And I didn't even know like that that existed. And then I like read about it. And then I was over at the primal booth and our, our mutual friend, Pat was like, you got to meet this woman who beat the land speed. I was like, 
wow, this is the day. And then I met you. It was so cool. Oh, man. Yeah, that was definitely still right on the heels of having done the record, because I think that was on either the Tuesday or a Wednesday. And we had just set the record the prior Sunday. So we were still on cloud nine. Wow. So for people who aren't familiar with what we're talking about, can you elaborate a little bit? Sure. The record that I did is called the Paced Bicycle Land Speed Record. It is an actual Guinness World Book record. It's in their books. And it's something that's been done since 1899. And it's a record where a cyclist, under their own power, stays and rides in the draft of a motorized vehicle of some form. It actually started in 1899 with a train. Charles Milo Minute Murphy had um, they had boards set up for about a mile of track between the tracks and he drafted behind a train in 1899 and did 60 miles an hour and so he was known as Charles Mile a Minute Murphy and it was actually a promotional stunt for the railroad it wasn't intended to be a record but that first one became the first record and then since then it was done with behind motorcycles a lot of them on the velodrome and then it as vehicles became more predominant it was then done behind vehicles, and there's about a dozen men that have done this record since 1899, with the most recent one, 1995, which is Fred Rompelberg from the Netherlands, and then prior to that is my coach in 1985, John Howard. And John Howard did 152 miles an hour, and he did it at Bonneville Salt Flats, and Fred Rompelberg, who still technically is the men's record holder, however... I beat his record with his own car. Um, he did 166.9 miles an hour in 1995. So how did you hear about this? I mean, maybe from your coach, but like, how did you hear about it? And what made you decide that you wanted to do this? It was definitely all my coach. In fact, you have to look in so many avenues. How I got into cycling was I met my coach on a bicycle ride, literally drafted behind him for about eight miles, ironically. <laughs> and he was wondering, I was 14 years old and he got me and he suggested to my dad to get me into bicycle racing a month later. I got into my first race and won it. So he got me on the bike. After I'd quit racing in my junior years, 20 some odd years later, he gets me back on my bicycle after 20 years of not being on it. Like you just didn't ride at all for like 20 years. Nope. Completely hung it up, did the family thing, the career thing. And he got me back on a bicycle to do a charity ride. And he saw there was this spark that was still there that he saw in me. And I'm a daredevil by nature. So it was him that actually brought up the land speed record. And the second he brought it up, it was almost like, oh my gosh. Are you kidding? I never thought about this myself because it's a no brainer. He said no woman had ever done this record before. So I got to have the honor of being the very first woman. So instantly I said, I'll do it. But my coach was instigating and getting me on the bike racing originally back on the bike after 20 years and also for this record. So what got you on the bike at age 14? That actually was my dad. He had, he used to jog and had knee issues. So his dad, my grandfather bought us two bicycles to ride on the beach to get some form of exercise. And I was old enough to start working out with my dad. And we actually, I was at school and they announced some sort of a fundraiser for the children's asthma league and brought the flyer home. We did the ride and I had so much fun doing that, that we started doing charity rides every weekend, no matter where they were, we'd drive and spend the night somewhere and do a charity ride. And it was on one of our rides, not a charity ride, but we did San Francisco to San Diego. And it was on that last day that I met Coach John Howard when he went by me and I saw a free ride. So I got on his <laughs> I got on his wheel and that's how I met Coach John. Wow. And how did 
mountain or was it both mountain bike and road cycling in high school? Oh, I started out with road. However, I'm a sprinter by nature, just always have been. That's my, Mm -hmm. that's just what I'm good at. And so when I found mountain biking and downhill mountain bike racing, that was my ultimate, it fit my personality. It fit my need for speed. And, you know, it really worked for me as far as a sprinter goes on the road. I was more of a criterium rider. I love the sprint at the end. And that's what I came back as a master doing criteriums and won two more national championships in the crit side, because that's just my specialty. I hate going uphill and I hate time trials. <laughs> awesome. Well, congrats on those. Um, how, how did racing through high school change your perception of yourself and your perception of what your ability was, especially looking back? Because high school is a really tough time. And now, you know, high school cycling is a really big thing. But back and I'm not saying like back then, but, you know, yeah. high school, oh, okay. high school cycling wasn't like a thing until more recently. So what was that like? You know, I've always had an independent streak as far as doing something that's a very independent type of sport, even though there are teams in cycling. I wasn't into the soccer. I wasn't into judge sports like, you know, gymnastics or anything. I just didn't like anything where I could have judges decide. I wanted to know you either cross the line first, second or third based on on what you did. But getting involved at 14, basically seventh grade through 12th grade, cycling had such interesting impacts for me. One, the independence and the strength of being able to do things on my own because I was traveling and flying with a group of individuals that are part of a team, but not racing with me. They were, you know, in all different categories. And so I got to really feel that familial type of environment where we all supported each other. We all watched out for each other. I really didn't have connections at high school, which is weird because I'm not even listed in my yearbook in the scene, my senior yearbook, because I didn't realize you had to take your own photo and give it to them. (laughs) So I'm not even listed my yearbook. So I'm sort of flew under the radar at high school because I would be gone so much for cycling. So, but it really taught me a lot on the independent side of things. I think if they'd had a club in school, I'd have been a lot more connected to the school. But man, it just was a wonderful thing. And the other element was I have ADHD and didn't even realize it. I found out later as an adult about what I had. (laughs) When I look back, I go, man, cycling really was my medication going through high school and junior high and allowed me to focus on the schoolwork that I thought was really boring and useless. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm not super familiar with treatment for ADHD. How exactly does cycling help with that? Like, that sounds really cool because... I've never like checked to see if I have it, but I noticed that when I'm riding more, I tend to be more focused in my daily life. And that's pretty much it. Uh, Any form of a working out, uh, a lot of runners, because running is a lot simpler of a sport to get into because of not the equipment of a bicycle Mm -hmm. and what have you, but a lot of other people, they get into it. And it's just, it is a way of releasing all that energy and allowing the mind to focus. And I'm sure any athlete, and I'm sure you can agree, if you get off the bike or, or stop working out for a few days, you can do probably a couple of days. But by the time you get through fourth or fifth, you start getting, you know, sort of anxious and, and it affects you in a mental way also, at least for myself. So it just allowed me to calm my mind. And as you've experienced, focus a lot better, too. Cool. So what made you decide after spending all that time growing up as a cyclist, what made you decide to hang up the bike? Oh, that was a great one. A great question because it it ties back into what I had to deal with getting back on the bike. Mm. I won 13 national championships as a junior. 
I had two podiums at Worlds, um, one of which was downhill mountain biking in Italy, the very first junior Worlds that they had. And so I got to a point where I was doing so well on a regular basis. You know how you show up to a race and they look at you and go, okay, you're the target and you're supposed to do well. Yeah, I definitely know. (laughs) Yeah. And so I allowed that anxiety, the performance anxiety that I developed internally to really get to me. And I got to the point where I'd show up to the line and my stomach was in knots. And I just, I didn't want to be there anymore. I'd lost that fun because now it was a chore and there was this expectation that I was creating that I had to meet and continue to win. So I just got to the point I was going to become a senior that was, and now it would be called elite or under 28, but I was going to graduate out of the juniors. So I was now going to be in a different level. I was graduating high school. Parents were going through divorce, partnership issues with uh, my parents' business. And, you know, I frankly just went, you know what, now is the best of time as any to get out of it because the anxiety of that was just overwhelming. It wasn't worth it anymore. It wasn't any fun anymore. So I literally cold turkey. I remember the training ride I was on and I, I cried and said, this is it. And I hung the bike up and I literally did not get on that bike for at least 10, 15 years. Wow. And do you think it was the expectations of others that were, was driving the anxiety or is it your expectation of yourself? Definitely myself, because when I announced that I was going to quit, I figured everyone was going to be so upset and disappointed and try to convince me otherwise. And they pretty much let me do what I want to do because how I had motivated myself and it's, it helped in the motivation, but it ended up backfiring as, because what I would do is I would tell myself I needed to impress this sponsor and I needed to do this for that person. They weren't asking it of me. I artificially did that where I needed to impress them and and do well for others and that shouldn't have done it with that type of a motivation because it eventually just crushed me. Yeah. And I mean, now I'm just projecting, but for myself, I think inner expectation is really hard to deal with because sometimes that could mean that you think that you're not lovable if you don't meet your own expectation. Like if I'm not this good, then people aren't going to love me and I'm not going to love myself. And that's really hard because like all of us have expectations in some way that we have to deal with, whether it's of ourselves, whether it's of what other people expect of us. And it's really hard to learn how to deal with those things and how to process those. And so you mentioned, and I do want to cover the amount of time, like what you were doing in between your bike escapades, but how, how did you come to terms with being able to deal with this anxiety of expectation whenever you got back on the bike, particularly because you're trying to beat a record, which there's massive expectation with that. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is when my coach said, hey, would you like to, you know, no woman's ever done this land speed record. And I instantly went, oh my gosh, I am so in because I was at a point of seizing any unique goal, but they're all individual goals. Mm-hmm. I wanted to run all seven continents for marathons. And I wanted to do all 50 states for half marathons. I wanted to do an Ironman. Nothing was competitive with anybody else but me. Mm-hmm. So when along came this record, I really had no one to compete against because if you think about it, no woman had ever done this. So I was breaking new territory. So again, it fit right in with my adrenaline junkie and you know setting individual goals. So then my coach said, but you realize it's been over 20 years since you've been out on the bike, actually 23 years by the time I started racing again. And he said, you know, I want you to get back out there and I want you to start bike racing again. And my stomach clenched up immediately because now 
what? <laughs> and then he had to add the caveat. And it's been a number of years since you had all your national championships. I want you to go out there and I want you to win a national championship so that you become more relevant to today when you do this record. And I mean, that was like, he not only, you know, caused my stomach to clench, but on top of that, to ask to win a national championship, he imagined that expectation. So it just brought it all back to home. And I had to really think about that. And I agreed because, again, I had one of my greatest mentors and, and, and believers in me, which is my coach. Mm -hmm. And again, I wanted to make sure, OK, I can do this. But I had the support of him. I wasn't trying to impress him. I knew I had the support of him. But I, when I started in with my first criterium in 2014, it was fun and nobody knew me. It, it was nice to show up and not have anybody looking at me because I'm the nobody. I was unattached and it was just totally fun. But when I started doing well and people started noticing me, I got on a team. Along came those issues again, which is performance anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so I actually went to hypnotherapist mm -hmm. um, to deal with some of that. I also had to deal with accepting to get back into racing of knowing that I got to vindicate one of the biggest regrets, which was how I left cycling mm -hmm. by coming back in and dealing with it. And so it was actually I turned it around into a positive to allow me to correct that, the issue that had always been sitting out there. And I felt sort of like a quitter. So, but I had to do a lot of things. I mean, one of the things I did in preparation for the record too, was doing neurofeedback at a place called Interoptimal that happened to be one of my sponsors, but I would do once a week up to three times a week as I got close to the record to help me deal with relaxing and taking stress and removing it from my mind and not allowing it to overtake. So I did a lot of vision boarding and just so many things to help focus, to get rid of that performance anxiety. Can you and then I came back and I did do two national championships. I not only won the one year first criterium, I came back and won the second year, which again, blew me away that my coach could see that in me and believe in me so much. And then to be able to do it. Yeah. I mean, the people you surround yourself with, especially when people you look up to say, I believe in you, that's so massively powerful. And that's a great testament to the point that it's so important to surround ourselves with people who believe in us, not people who say, well, that's a stupid dream. That's just a right. stupid hobby. Like how many times have we heard that? Like a, a million, like oh. cy cycling isn't like a mainstream, like, oh, I'm going to be an, an NBA player. Like cycling's the kind of the black sheep sport still. What is neurofeedback and like, what are some techniques, if there are any, that people can do at home to try and get into the state of ease? Well, neurofeedback is I have to go to a place that has the uh, proper equipment and mm -hmm. it's with sound and visual and audio. And it basically calms the mind and sort of does a rewiring of the mind through these special brain waves. Oh, <laughs> or, cool. uh, or, you know, so it's very it sort of sounds nanu nanu weird, but you know, you have these diodes on the ear and a couple on the head and it just helps. It's again, the electrical impulses and how it deals with sort of, you know, setting your mind at ease and relaxing it. But the other thing I did is I did a lot of vision boarding where I'd put my goals on a vision board. And then I also had a gratitude board because once I achieved the goal, I actively took it off the vision board and put it onto the gratitude board because the gratitude board showed the vision board worked. So it's like a reinforcement. And then I did a lot of visualization. In mm -hmm. fact, while I was doing the neurofeedback, I would visualize based on what John Howard said, how the land speed record works. And I literally would go through an entire run before I ever did a run 
in my mind and know, okay, I'm going to release and I'm going to feel very solid and secure and I'm going to be able to accomplish doing the record. One other thing I did is I have a friend of mine in Seroptimus. I'm a, a Seroptimus and Rotary are two service clubs. And she created a CD that I would play right as I fell asleep. So as soon as I closed my eyes, I'd hit play and I had my earphones in. And for an hour and a half, it was subliminal messages about being able to accomplish this is I am strong. I am confident, you know, and it sounds sort of corny, but you know, when you're in your theta state, right before you go into your deeper sleep, your mind is very open to this. And so I did that every single night for three months leading up to the first record. So, you know, the mind side of it, because the record requires quite a bit of guts. I mean, you have your physical training for it, but then it, you know, there's like, I could go in a pack of cyclists and I can look at all of them and go, all of them could do this record as far as the physical standpoint. But now you have your bicycle handling skills side of it. And then also just the desire to do it. <laughs> so it really, all of this mind work caused me to prepare from a mental standpoint of not allowing the scariness of this to overwhelm me and to give myself the confidence to do it. That's so cool. And and for the listeners, we'll put some links in the show notes to the place where you did your neurofeedback and also maybe some links on like where to find something you can listen to falling asleep. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So yeah, there's a lot of different things to break down of this entire process. So you mentioned that before you set the first record and you've set two. So leading into going for this first record, how did you even know what equipment to use? How did you know where to do it? Like, can you start from the beginning? Sure, everything. And that's the beauty of having John Howard working with him so closely. We lived only three and a half miles from each other. So we'd constantly do training together. But, you know, when somebody's been there and done that, they're the best mentor. So we can ask them all sorts of questions. and They know what to expect because not many people have done this record. So the resource of knowledge is not very great. But um, he also was the number one champion in getting the bicycle built, which we we based off of the logic on John Howard's bicycle. But then Fred Rompelberg took John Howard's bicycle and took it to the next level. And so we actually flew out to Mallorca, Spain, which is where Fred Rompelberg has a bicycle holiday business. And so he had his bicycle out there. And so we took the dimensions off his bicycle. and We built ours basically off of his we knew to use the double reduction gearing because that's the last two record holders had used that. And when you get to this gear inches that we had to have, you need to have double reduction because you can't have a 300 inch front chain ring and a 12 tooth cog. You're going to be scraping the ground. So, you know, the steering dampener, the, the rake of the front fork, the lower center of uh, the smaller wheels, all of that was because we based it off the predecessors and we had access to Fred Rompelberg, access to John Howard and access to Dr. Alan Abbott, who's the 1973 record holder. So the biggest thing is to use the resources of people who have paved the ground before you. And what is double, re you call it double retention gearing? Double reduction. Double reduction. It's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a, a chain ring going to a cog, just like we know, but it's a direct drive, just like a track bike. However, on the other side of that bottom bracket, there's another chain ring. So a chain ring to a cog. On the other side of the cog, there's another chain ring oh. that goes to yet the rear wheel that has another cog. So we had a 60 tooth chain ring to a 12 tooth cog to another 60 tooth chain ring to another 12 tooth cog. 
And that double reduction or that um, much like a pulley system, you know how you ever had where you have a big old concrete block and you can't lift it. But if you put a bunch of pulleys, all of a sudden you can lift it. It's very slow, but it changes the way in which the gearing works. So same with the bicycle. So with that, every turn of the cranks, so one entire <laughs> circle. Revolution, yeah. Revolution, thank you. My brain's not working today. Would be 138.5 feet. Oh, wow. So if you think of a rollout on your normal bike, even a racing bike, you know, it's like, what, 30 feet or something on your biggest, hardest gear. And and with this one, I'm going 138 and wow. a half feet. So with that, that's why when people ask, oh, is this a towed record? No, I had to be towed up to the point in which my legs can turn that gear over because <laughs> I have one gear for, you know, and, and cyclists will understand you can't go zero or one mile an hour and 180 with a one particular gear so i have to choose where is that gear going to get used and it was at the upper end mm -hmm. so i had to go at least 110 miles an hour before i can really turn that gear over properly yeah and whenever you if you guys listening just think about this like just getting up to 110 miles an hour like most of us well maybe i don't know it depends on how crazy of a driver you are but like i've never driven a vehicle 110 miles an hour and we're talking about getting towed on a bicycle to 110 miles an hour so you can start pedaling to get yeah, even faster and that, and that was done in basically a mile wow <laughs> so yeah and that was one of the things that um, <laughs> my race car driver uh shay holbrook was the same one that i used in 2016 when i did the women's record because again in 2018 i came out to do the overall record and, and mm -hmm. got to crush fred rumpelberg's record but with that, the one thing we really worked on was being able to be towed as quick as possible up to the release speed. Because the quicker I get to do that, the more miles I get to continue to increase the speed while I'm disconnected and surfing that draft of air. Mm -hmm. And weren't you afraid of falling? Because if you fall at that speed, yeah. don't you die? Very <laughs> high likelihood. I mean, Fred Rumpelberg actually crashed probably somewhere near 140 miles an hour in 1988. And he did break many bones, somewhere upwards near 20 bones, I guess. And it took him seven years to come back out to be able to do the record from a financial standpoint, a new vehicle standpoint, and to be recovered. And so with that, yes, it can be very dangerous, if not deadly. And of course, the faster you go, and as cyclists know, when you tumble, it's very bad. <laughs> when you slide, it may hurt, but it's very survivable and you usually aren't going to break things. And so with that, in the event I ever had to go down, I had done a lot of programming in my mind of how I would fall in the event that that were to take place, which it never did, thank God. But I would slide because you're out on the salt flats. There's no foam poles or cars or trees or anything to hit. And the second I were to have gone down, the car in front of me would be out of my way. And so you just go down and you slide. And so that's my, you know, how I would work with the negative thoughts because people would ask the question and I didn't want to avoid the question. How I just did it was prepare with how I would fall. I just don't want to tumble. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of times, like, especially in my world with mountain biking, people are like, well, what about falling? What about crashing? And it's like, you just can't think about that. If you start thinking yeah. about crashing and how it's going to feel or what it's going to look like, you have to focus yeah. on what you need to do to succeed in that moment instead of thinking about what happens if you don't succeed. Yep. Where energy flows, <laughs> our focus goes where energy flows. And so, yes, if you if that's what you're thinking about, it's like the law of attraction. You know, it's like, oh, crash, crash. All your mind hears is crash. <laughs> so you didn't have any crashes then? 
only in training. And I had a really bad one in February of 2017, where I broke my shoulder blade in half and a hole out of the metal. It was really bizarre and broke a rib. And that was in a group training ride. Oh, so it was a group ride. It wasn't even yeah. like, oh man, I'm terrified. At road bike. I'm terrified yeah. at road bike group rides. I don't go on them just because I just don't want to go down on, on a road bike. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's not good, especially with other people involved. <laughs> so in terms of bike handling, I'm guessing that at those speeds, those really high speeds, upwards getting closer to even 200 miles an hour, there's going to be speed wobbles and all kinds of things. Like, do you have a, a wider wheelbase bike? And do you have, and I, I mean, I saw pictures, so I'm kind of cheating. But for people listening, did you get a wider yeah. wheelbase bike? Was there suspension? Like, how was this bike set up? Did it look like a road bike? Yeah. Nothing like a road bike. I mean, it, it resembles a bicycle and it certainly, I'm sure you'll put the links for our website because that's where they'll be able to get a picture of it. Yeah. But it is a custom built bicycle. KHS has been our sponsor since the very, since literally this was an idea. So they cool. were behind and they were involved with John Howard years ago. And, and that's how that connection came about. So they sponsored the custom build of this bicycle. So it's a longer wheelbase. The bicycle is about seven feet long. And that allows for, much like a semi-truck, you're going to be a lot more stable the longer your wheelbase is. There's 17-inch rims, or wheels, and the tires are motorcycle dragster 2.0 tires that are on there. And of course, our regular bicycle componentry on those moving parts would not withstand anything of this speed. So you had to get motorcycle componentry for those mm -hmm. moving parts. And the other benefit of using 17 inch rims or, or wheels is the fact that you have a lower center of gravity, which again brings you back down closer to the ground, which allows for more stability. The difference between a go-kart and walking around on stilts type of thing. And so the steering stabilizer we have on there to avoid speed wobbles is on the um, headset. And that did a wonderful job because the faster I went, the more stable that the bike was going in a straight line. The wheels actually were balanced, just like you have motorcycle or car wheels balanced. So I had little teeny weights on there because, again, you don't want to have things getting off. At 180 miles an hour, they still need to be going perfectly round and not have a, a heavy spot. And then the tires were actually shaved down just a bit to allow more physical contact to the ground. Because as you go faster, the wheel tends or the tire ends up elongating to where it minimizes the surface area touching the salt. And so we wanted to maximize that. So we shaved sort of a flat spot on the area that was touching the ground all the way around the circumference of the wheel. We already talked about the double reduction gearing. We had a connect seat post that allowed some body float. So there was suspension under my seat with that. And then we also had a mountain downhill mountain bike fork, actually, for our front fork. But yeah, it's just, and, and the thing is, is we also had one cantilever brake in the rear, but I never touched the brake the entire time I was on the bike because we used the wind to slow me down. After I slowed down to 110 miles an hour after the event is done, my the race car driver in the pace car actually goes away. She puts her foot down on the accelerator and sort of births me out the back of the draft. And I allow then the wind to slow me down the rest of the way. Wow. And what about the clothing? The clothing. Well, that actually is yet another sponsor. Actually, our shared sponsor is yes. Primal and where, where we met when we were out at uh, Reno at the, at the bicycle show at Interbike. Um, yes. Primal sponsored the suit back in 2016, and we had to do yet another suit for 2018 because some improvements had been made. And so 
The suit is a leather and Kevlar suit. It's similar to what a downhill luge skateboarder, X game racer mm -hmm. would use. Cause I needed something that allowed me the flexibility, but then also the safety in the event that I would go down. So it was leather based and leather for the whole suit, Kevlar in areas. So I was able to get some movability and a little bit of neoprene. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering about that. Cause I saw that you didn't have any pads or anything like that. There were some built into the knees and the elbows within the suit. And then of course I had a gloves that had carbon fiber knuckles and <laughs> protection on there. I had mountain bike ankle protectors. Oh, wow. <laughs> They doubled up on ankle protectors because the suit only went so far. Mm -hmm. And then you had, I had regular bicycle shoes on because mm -hmm. I couldn't have special shoes on. So I, I had my everyday bicycle shoes on. So I had some primal booties over, so it looked good. But underneath that, I had the, the safety for my ankles in the event anything happened. And what's interesting is the suit alone weighed about six and a half to seven pounds. Wow. So that's a lot to be moving. Yeah. <laughs> and the bicycle weighed about 35 pounds. Okay. And then I want to talk about the race car and also your race car driver. Like how did you select her? Mm -hmm. And then like how that, there's a lot of trust that goes into following a car that closely, especially at those speeds. Yes. Shay Holbrook is our pace car driver and we used her in 2016 and then again in 2018. So we had a lot of connection that we built upon from 2016. But the how the selection occurred was really, we honestly, we always knew we wanted to have a female race car driver. So we were trying to get Danica Patrick, because again, everybody knows Danica Patrick, but mm -hmm. we weren't having any success there. So we finally reached out to a few people and said, okay, who would you recommend? Both the people, we had two different people come back and recommend Shay Holbrook. Mm -hmm. And so I reached out to her one day on the phone. She's from Florida. I'm from Southern California. So we're on two different ends of the map, reached out to her, and it was like we'd known each other forever. I don't know how to describe, but when you know you have that connection, it's just, it, it's hard to explain. So, And she immediately knew what it was like to have, basically, she put, have my life in her hands. And she says she's been in a similar situation on the other side, because she actually raised a dragster which I had no idea we'd be using her again in 2018 when I first talked to her. I thought we were going to be done in 2016, period, end of story. But she had driven a dragster at or 260-some-odd miles an hour. Oh, my God. And it was, a, it was a jet dragster. But the jet dragster was built by college students. And so she talked to them and goes, listen, my life is in your hands. So she knew what it was like to have other people in the position of your safety. And so now the roles are reversed. She's going to be holding my life in her hands. So her and I talked and it was like, we'd known each other forever. So, and then we built upon that communication and connection. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the hardest things I believe for her, because we had talked about this was her pulling me up to release speed. And she wanted to take long and long time to do it because it's very hard to imagine attaching a bike on a cable not even a, a fixed thing. It's just a cable and you're going to take off and you're going to think, oh my gosh, if I go too fast, I'm going to pull the bike out from under her. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so her and I had to work because I wanted her to go faster and faster, quicker. And she had to work her way up to that comfort because again, I made the choice to take this risk. It's me that would get hurt based on this choice. And so I've accepted that, but because I'm not responsible for no one else, but myself when it comes to doing this. She took the responsibility of not only being responsible for herself, 
but also for me. And that's just a whole different role that she had to deal with and she had to work her way up for. Yeah. And I mean, not to mention, I I don't know if she has kids as well, but you have three kids. And like a lot of people, I've heard people say anyway, like, oh, I can't do that. I have kids or they like use, they say they have kids and use that as almost a barrier to not do something. And I'm not saying that with any judgment because I don't know what it's like to have kids. But like, what was that like for you to do something to that extreme, knowing that you have kids? Well, in all fairness, when I did this in 2016, my youngest was 17, just about to turn 17. So in a sense, my children are grown Mm because I have a 24, 23, and now 19 year old. And so in a sense, I don't have little kids. Would I have rethought this if they were younger? Being a single mom and there being younger, I probably wouldn't have taken this risk in all honesty, but I wasn't faced with that. The choice came when my boys were already basically grown. So, Mm -hmm. but yeah, Shay doesn't have any children. And in fact, ironically, when we first did this in 2016, she was unmarried and I was unmarried. And in 27, both she and I both ended up getting married the same year. And Uh so we came back in 2018, both as married people. So we both also took these risks you know, one before marriage and then also chosen to do it after marriage. And what made you decide to go do it a second time? Because like the first time you did it and you're like, yes, I I beat the record. Like what sparked that? Oh my gosh. Well, I would have been done if we'd achieved the speed that we thought we had still in us, but weren't able to prove in 2016. We had done a lot of preparation for 2016 and we had four days, this event that we go to is with cars, motorcycles, and we're the odd record breaker out there with a bicycle. But we have four days during this event. And the first day we went out there and we did two amazing runs. And then we had car issues the second day. And so we went out on the third day and then we had three aborted runs basically. And we couldn't figure out what was going on. So Shay and I sat down and we figured out what the magic dance between her matching my oscillation that's occurring in the back in that draft And so we finally spoke through it and we were able to break through and all of a sudden we were in sync with each other. And we went out there just to do a good test run and did 140.7 miles an hour. And it was easy. So we had unlocked the key to being in sync with each other. And so we said, oh man, we're coming back tomorrow. And I felt just internally confident that I could get 155 miles an hour. I definitely know. So we got to the salt the next day. It had rained the night before. And so they canceled the very last day. And so we felt we left speed out on the salt and we knew we could achieve more. And without even thinking, without conversing with each other, we just went, we're coming back. We're coming back next year and we're going to take not only this record, we're taking the overall record. And so we just sort of opened our mouths and put it out there and took us more than one year. It took us two years to get back out there, but we did it and we, we crushed the record. So if it hadn't rained that last night and we'd gone out there and proved ourselves, I'd probably just have the women's record and be done. But, you know, f- fate and God has an amazing way of which to sort of make things happen a little bit differently than we thought. So were you riding on salt? Like, sorry if this is an ignorant question, but or was it on asphalt? No, it's salt. It is actually a lake bed. And that's why they do these speed records out at Bonneville with cars and motorcycles, Hmm. because it's where you can get miles upon miles of perfectly flat. There might be teeny tiny, like the granular salty surface, but it's a perfectly flat ground. Whereas you can't really find 
a perfectly flat road man-made because there's always going to be little undulations of up and downs. Mm -hmm. And with that, for cars that go three or 400 miles an hour, Mm -hmm. a teeny tiny undulation will actually launch them at that speed. So they have to do it out of the salt flats. It is sort of one of the wonders of the world, I guess you say, as far as what occurs out there. That's so cool. Like I had no idea that that even existed. Yep. And it's, it is definitely salty out there. Salt, you could pretty much, if you, much like snow, you're not going to just go out there on a ski run where everybody's been running, put your hand out and, you know, eat the snow because it's sort of gross, but it is snow out there in the salt flats. You could literally go pick that salt up, put it in your mouth. It is salt. Wow. (laughs) Just like you would eat on your food. (laughs) So you mentioned that at the end of that first year, what year was that? 2016? 2016. You discovered a key that enabled you to go faster next time. What was that key? That key was the way in which Shay and I worked together because she had to match this oscillation that was occurring in that back because I would oscillate forward and back. So speaking of like watts, I would put out about 700 watts when I'm floating back because I'm wanting to have that pocket of air at the back catch me and shove me forward. And once it does that, I'm being shoved forward. I'm light pedaling at about 200 watts, you know, and so it's just oscillation. And what would occur is when her and I would be off, she'd be speeding up a little when I'm floating back and I'd pop right out the back end of that Mm. draft, which would be the end of that run. And then it would be almost hours before we could get back in line and do it again. And so we just didn't know. And so she finally was able to match my oscillation. Only thing I can imagine is much like Madison riders out on the velodrome is, you know, if they're not perfectly in sync with each other, it's a failure to launch the other person. Same here. We just had to work through it. And then all of a sudden we just nailed it and the sky seemed to be the limit. Okay. Yeah. I guess I didn't understand the oscillation part of like floating back and coming up within the draft. Yeah. Cool. So like you mentioned wattage and now I want to get to the last kind of puzzle piece of this the training and like what your effort and intensity was like while you, after you unhooked the tether. Oh boy. Yeah. Well, and the training, I'll answer the training side of it because I had to do a lot of very intensive training. I probably did more than what was maybe necessary, but again, like anything you want to have more in you for the event, you need to pull that out. And so for me, I did a lot of uh, strength training in the gym all the way to a month before each of these records. Mm -hmm. I was doing 240 pound deadlifts with a hex bar. I was doing weighted lunges with 35 pounds in each hand, doing 10 lunge steps, resting for 10 to 15 seconds, doing another 10 and doing that for anywhere from four to six minutes. So intense strength training. And then I also had motor pacing that I do at the velodrome in San Diego behind a, a motorcycle. And then the group rides and and other cross training. So it just, I couldn't get out there and I would try and emulate with the training what my muscles are going to be needing to do behind the race car because I couldn't get behind the race car and train because we don't have the five miles of salt that I'm needing to be able to get up to speed. So with that, that was a, a huge element on the physical preparation. One thing to really note is The difference between 2016 and 2018 is we had two different vehicles and there were three key differences that made 2016 like an amusement park ride for me and 2018 to be a death terrifying ride. 
And it, the reality was, I mean, when people asked, they go, oh, were you afraid? Were you, you know, were you scared in 2016? I explained it as exhilaration because it was like going to Disneyland and going to Space Mountain, if that's your favorite ride. And you wait in line, you get in there and you're screaming your head off. And it's not out of fear. It's out of exhilaration and fun. You get off and you go, dang, let's go do that again. And so that's what 2016 felt like, because I never felt like I was in danger. Mm. 2018, we had three main elements that changed. Our vehicle changed, which meant the aerodynamics. And the Range Rover is what we used in 2016. And if you think about the aerodynamics, the way the wind hits, once the wind hits the windshield, it settles and has a long way before it gets to the end of the fairing. And I experienced that wind. So it's pretty much settled into a nice, nice sheet of wind on the left and the right. However, in 2018, this year with the dragster, the dragster has a very small nose, a long nose. It's like a needle going into the wind. And so it basically, the wind isn't getting disturbed until it hits the front of the ferry, which is this huge, big, almost wall, which is creating that pocket of air for me but only four feet later, it's hitting me. So the wind's getting pissed off. And then only four feet later, it hits me. So I hadn't had a chance to settle. So it was very violent on the left and the right. Of course, the extra almost 40 mile an hour wind. So now we've added 40 miles an hour. So that of course is going to create a different wind pocket. And then the other element is I had a 50 inch wide fairing in 2016 from left to right the width of that Range Rover was 58 inches. Now, the dragster was only 46 inches. So I lost an entire foot of left to right pocket. Mm. And so those three elements made the 2018 ride. Literally, I felt like I was being buffeted like a ping pong in the back left to right with this very violent wind that If I were to penetrate left or right, it would have grabbed that side of my handlebar and literally caused me to go down. There's a few times, if you look at the video on YouTube, where my wheel got really close to the fairing, like uncomfortably close. That never happened in 2016 because I had such nice width. So this ride was terrifying compared. It It was literally a survival ride. So why did you choose, or or maybe, I don't know if you had the choice, but why did you use a dragster? Was it because you needed the extra speed? Well, we didn't have the uh, use of the Range Rover again, because it was, again, a two-year gap there. Mm -hmm. And so with that, we did negotiate with Fred Rompelberg, because he still owns that dragster, Mm -hmm. for us to use it. And really, it was one of those, hey, it worked for Fred. I could break Fred's record with Fred's dragster because it worked for him. We didn't think to actually do wind tunnel testing or flow dynamics. And we ran out of time, frankly, in the preparation. If I were to even consider trying to break this record again or to go for 200 miles an hour, because, you know, every, somebody out there is going to be trying for this. And in fact, I already know two people that are for this record, one of which is in Belgium, one's in the UK. But if I were to even consider coming back out, to take it to the next level, I would have to have aerodynamic testing. I'd have to have wind tunnel testing because I'd want to see what the airstream looked like with the dragster that I experienced. That was very nasty air or as far as the, um, this violent air and how would they make it better taking it to the next level? Because other than that, I would never even consider it and nor do I want to at this point. But even if I had an inkling to desire, I'd have to have a heck of a lot of engineering to be done before I'd consider it. 
So yeah, going back to the training, you mentioned gym work and, and group rides. So would you say that you were training more like a track sprinter than like a, a road cyclist? I would say so. I got to the point near the end where I didn't even want to do anything more than a 30 mile ride because it was useless. Mm-hmm. So yes, it was very much sprint related, like a track cyclist. Yes. And I, I did spend time on the track with the motor pacing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're, you're going, you're behind the car, you're up to 110 miles an hour, you release the tether. And then how did Shay know what rate to increase the speed for you to increase your speed to stay where you needed to be behind the car? And there's where we had to work together. And in fact, as far as the release, the release was more dictated on a mile marker, which is mile just before mile marker one and one quarter. And so it's a probably based on everything I can see, because I don't have the exact answer because she dictated the release. Mm-hmm. It was between the 110 to 140 mile an hour mark. That's what the estimate is. I don't have the exact number because I know that question comes up a lot. And that's mm-hmm. why we tell it's at a mile marker one and a quarter but she dictates it. And so she has lights because we have no communication with each other, which is a very other unique facet is her and I, she has two video cameras. So she's able to watch me on two little monitors in the cockpit. And then she has five toggle switch lights that are for mile marker one, two, three, four, and five. And so we use the five mile marker as the, you need to release Denise, because if you do think just like you were saying, is in that first mile, she's bringing me up at least 100 to 110 miles an hour in that very first mile. Well, if she continues that trajectory on the gas pedal, she's going to be 500 miles an hour by mile marker five. Mm -hmm. Okay, that ain't going to happen or 400 (laughs) miles an hour. I didn't go 400. So because of that, she needs to change how she increases her speed and lets me know she is prepared for me to now float in that pocket in order to make the transition from toe to drafting. So she gives me the mark and I do the release. It occurs right at, like I said, mile marker one and a quarter. And then she is watching those cameras to make sure she is playing with the edge of how fast she can go without throwing me out the back of the pocket. Mm -hmm. And that's a balance between pure physics. I mean, no human could even pedal fast enough if she kept that 110 miles per one mile you know, increase Mm -hmm. in speed, I would have been thrown out the pocket. So she knows she can't go that fast. She knows she doesn't stay at the exact speed because I have the ability to put input into the pedals to continue to stay with the car. So it literally was being in each other's almost head and her watching that camera. And the reality is the faster you go, the more the pocket of air in the back is shoving you forward. Mm -hmm. So at a certain point, I don't know if she would have been able to almost drop me out of the back of the draft. I don't know. A physics engineer would have to be able to answer that question. But at 180 miles an hour, I don't think the car would have been able to increase in speed beyond what that pocket would have almost shoved me and continued to keep me in there. Mm -hmm. So it became more of a bicycle handling skill and um, guts at the end than it was when the release occurred. And that's more where the physical output and effort had to really occur was making sure at the lower speeds, I was able to stay in that pocket, knock it out the back. So like, are you basically riding at max effort? Or is it like that the tether comes undone? And like, slowly, you're ramping up your effort harder and harder and harder. Or maybe you like, you go harder and harder and harder. But now you're getting sucked along, like you mentioned at the higher speeds. So like, what like, what is the trajectory of your effort like relative to the speed increase? I never experienced 
complete anaerobic. I didn't experience my highest heart rate either because that would have been bad because (laughs) as a sprinter, if I get 186 beats per minute, which is what my high is, I'm not able to hold that for very long and I'm not thinking very straight. You Mm -hmm. lose some of your, your controls. So for me, I think I was in my 160s for heart rate. So I was still very controllable, mm-hmm. um, but I was pushing it. But some of that is also the anxiety factor. Mm-hmm. It's much like, you know, your heart rate races when you almost get hit by a car or something. And it wasn't because you were physically exerting. It was just the, you know, the, the, yeah. the adrenaline side of it. So what was the balance between the adrenaline and the physical output? I don't know. I just know what my heart rate was, but At the lower side of it, it is more the physical effort. So right after the release, it's going to be definitely more on the physical side. And then there's the anxiety of not wanting to get shot out the back of that draft. So, and then the, the violent wind gets more and more violent and it's matter of survival and literally the bicycle handling. And I really look back on my downhill mountain biking experience and really attribute my ability to stay upright. And I'm going to turn the light to my ability to stay upright to that experience that I had. Yeah. Wow. I'm just imagining what that would be like to be going that fast. Like that's insane. I wanted to ask you about, we talked about your, the mindset piece earlier about how you prepared for the moment, but while you were in the moment, while the tether releases, you mentioned the anxiety, like I'm sure you had moments of self-doubt moments thinking, Oh, I can't, or, or, Oh, like I'm done. Like, how did you deal with that in the present moment? There is no time to think about that. (laughs) And I mentioned ADHD earlier. And Mm -hmm. one of the things is when you get to be in basically a life death situation like that, it almost seemed the faster I went, the slower everything was going by. Mm. And it's a very bizarre thing. And I, I use an analogy of you hear people talk about being in a car accident sometimes. And they said how everything seemed to go in slow motion. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that's because you get so hyper focused in that absolute moment. You can't think of anything else at all. And so for me, I get back there and there is no time to think about absolutely anything else. So there's no time for even doubt. It is purely living in that moment and reacting to what you need to, to stay upright and stay in that pocket of air out of pure desperation. So there wasn't time to think about anything else. The moments leading up to actually the takeoff at the start line, I would just have to take that time and just in a sense, sort of Zen out and just use it to relax as much as I could. But I do remember on one of the, uh, cause this was only my third run behind this vehicle because we banked on everything that we had done in 2016 to build upon that. And if, if Shay and I hadn't worked together, I don't think we would have done this in three runs, but on one of the runs, I think it was my second one. We had to sit a while and I was back there and I could just feel my entire body just start vibrating. And it was just, you know, they just being so ready, so ready and just waiting because I'm looking through the window and I'm waiting for the guy to throw his hand down saying, we're ready to go. Cause I'd already given the signal. I'm ready when you are. And I was just waiting for the jerk to take off. And, um, you know, you just can't think of anything but positive and you just constantly give yourself positive reinforcement that this is going to be good. This is going to work out again, where your mind goes, the focus goes and your energy flows and that law of attraction. And if you think about anything negative, you're just setting up for disaster. So what was the final amount of time, like from the time the tether released to the time you got up to your speed, what was that exact time? And what was the exact speed? 
Oh my gosh. Let's see. We went, it's a five mile course. We start at zero. We exited at 183.4 miles an hour, but we did hit 188 miles an hour in mile marker five because the 183.9 is the average speed mile marker four to five. That entire time took, oh, and then a mile and a half for slowdown. So you're talking six and a half total miles, two minutes and 30 seconds. Wow. That's so crazy. in that last mile, that one mile that I had my average speed of 183.9 took 19 seconds to ride one mile. So the record, they say it has to be like an average speed in a one mile period, or is it the, the max number hit for a, a second? It cannot be the max number because my max number is not official. The um, timing that they have set up is legitimate timing that's already been through surveyors okay. and light timing and what have you. So we have to go with what their timing is. And they do have an exit speed, but it's a very short period of time or a short distance, which does not qualify for Guinness. Guinness requires, mm -hmm. if I uh, remember correctly, 200 meters or yards or 200 meters, I believe of a distance between two points, 200 meters to determine at least the average speed. However, the next closest to that is one mile. So that's what we were able to do. We didn't set up special timings just for me. Mm -hmm. So with that, that's what it is. But if somebody else comes out to try and beat this record, there is no governing body that says what the rules are. And that's why one of the things I did was try and immediately release the video that showed I released at mile marker one and a quarter, and I went to mile marker five under my own power, of course, in the draft, continuing to increase in speed. But a lot of people would question, oh, you just got towed, and then you just released right before they timed you. No. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the reality is we have to watch to make sure whoever comes to break this record doesn't just tow themselves right up to the point because in all reality someone could tow themselves up to 200 miles an hour and literally coast through <laughs> and technically have the record which we would all know that's not fair but right now there's no governing body that would actually say that that's not you know that they don't have the record because guinness is currently like i said the only one that has any form of expectations in order to get put into the book to beat the record mm. As a female crushing the entire record, which I think is amazing and awesome, like what does that mean to you? And what do you think that means to other women? Well, I think it's a beautiful thing to know that you can go and try for absolutely anything. And I've been asked a very similar question. And this particular record is physical in, in its components. However, it's not the only part of it, which sort of negates whether it is a men's or women's record. It's a fair playing field. Let's like go to tennis or go to surfing. In all reality, it's not whether you're a male or a female that's going to dictate your ability to do that sport. Now, if we're doing powerlifting, yeah, there's a difference between a man and a woman. We're not going to be able to compete fairly on that. So if anything, I see this as an example for women who tend to think, oh, I'm not going to compete at that level to say, why not? Just go ahead and go out there. Go ahead and try. I set my sights on the overall record just because I may not have gotten it, but I will have damn well tried. And I actually did get it. But I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, don't limit yourself based on the sex as far as male or female. Just go for it. I love that. That's so awesome. So now that you've accomplished this massive, massive thing, two, two Guinness Book of World Records, 
and so many national championships to your name that we've lost count. Like this is a difficult thing, I think, for people who have achieved a lot of amazing feats in their lives, because then people come up to you and they say, well, what's next? And it's so hard because you're like, well, I just did this like amazing thing. And do I even need to have an answer? And sometimes people just ask you, well, what's next just to make conversation. So like, how do you deal with that question? Well, it's pretty simple as far as myself, because I always had what my next goal would be. And it's not the physical side of it. It's more of taking this and doing inspirational speaking. Mm -hmm. And I say inspirational speaking because the message this is the hook. It's not to brag about myself. I'm not going to go out there and have people say, hey, talk to us about what you did. I mean, they're going to have curiosity and it's going to be the hook to get me in that door. But what I hope to do is inspire people to much like myself. I took 20 some odd years off and I literally had the inspiration from a coach that I'd had before. And I actually, what started me actually getting back even to where I could get back on the bike was I started running marathons. And that was because I was inspired by three women in the gym that I watched train for their very first marathon. And they know they inspired me because a few years later, I went back and go, do you realize I can connect the dots from watching you guys do your first marathon, inspiring me to set a goal to do a marathon all the way to this land speed record because they got me back into the game of life. And so that's what I want to be able to do is use this cool, wow, you know, record to be able to talk to especially people in the corporate world who have done the career, done the family, much like I did, is to get back into something, set a goal, and you just don't know where it's going to lead you. And that's my passion. I'm going to still stay healthy. I'm not racing anymore. I'm pretty much, I'll ride my bike probably once or twice a week, but I'm going to get back into running a little. And I'm going to just tone down on the competitive side of it. <laughs> enjoy life on that, but stay healthy, but really try and reach and inspire other people. That's so awesome. I can really relate with your marathon story. Um, that's what got me into cycling is some girl in, in high school at the end of high school said, you should like, I want to run a marathon and she was training for it. And I looked up to her. So I thought, well, I'll train for oh. marathons. I started running marathons and then I started doing spin class and got into cycling and I yep. actually wrote this girl a thank you note like a month ago and I mailed it to her and I, we, oh, had, we, we, awesome. yeah, we hadn't talked since high school. So I was like, this is, but seriously, like, yep. it's really amazing the impact that somebody can have on your life. Like all the people along the way, you know, we achieve these great things, but it's not just us that achieve them. It's these people that helped us along the way that didn't even know. So like the yep. impact that we can have on other people in their lives without even knowing it is so massive. And it's it's so cool, like what you've done and all the different people that you're inspiring, the ones that you know about, and also the ones that you don't know about. Yeah. Oh, and that is so true. That is so funny, the parallels, because I literally, after I did the 2016 record, I did reach out to them and I go, you realize I can trace this all the way back <laughs> to watching the three of you because they're, they're our gym buddies. And so we watched them for almost a year training for their first marathon and then decided to go down and watch them and literally went, oh, I'm going to do this next year only because of them. You know, it's just, it is cool to be able to literally go all the way back to that moment and know exactly who inspired you. And then would have never guessed it would have led to this. But that's the beauty is if people set goals, you just don't know where it's going to lead and it can be lead to such amazing things. Awesome. And my last question is, I, I really did want to ask you what you did in the in-between years. I, I read on Wikipedia that you were like CEO of a company. So can yeah. you elaborate really quickly to the business and family side of your life that you normally don't get to see now? What if you, if you look up information about you, you don't get to see the entire story. 
Yeah. And what's so funny is I actually have a Wikipedia page. So awesome. <laughs> I know I read it today. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, um, when I got out of the bicycle racing, I went straight into my parents' business. Actually, it was then my father. So my parents had started a security business called Rancho Santa Fe Security Systems in 1978. And I basically took over the business in around 90, 91 to 94, fully integrated into the company and took over the business officially in 94 and raised three children, ran a business, you know, did the typical career and family thing. Nothing bad with it. It was a wonderful time in my life to be able to do that. But um, I accomplished quite a bit and I took my competitiveness and used it in running the business and marketing and things of that nature. So I was able to take, again, those bicycling experiences as a junior and really apply them into the career and, and business world. Yeah. And I'm sure that that played a role into like getting funding and organizing everything that had to go along with this, this amazing project you've just done. Yeah. It definitely taught me how to be a leader and to take charge on certain elements. That's for sure. And the dedication to do the training. Awesome. Well, huge congratulations to you. And just thank you so much for everything that you've done and the bright light that you're spreading around the world and inspiring so many people, both men and women, to not put limitations on themselves and whatever it is that they want to do to actually go out there and just start doing it. Absolutely. All. Thank you very much. And where can people get a hold of you? Best thing is actually on social media. We're at FireCycle. But then also our website is www.theprojectspeed.com. Awesome. Well, I'll put those all in the show notes. And yeah, thank you again. Awesome. Thank you. Denise is super cool. I love how she took a break from cycling and then came back to accomplish such big things. A lot of times people quit doing something and then it's really hard to pick it back up again because there's expectations of what if I'm not as good as I used to be or where do I even start? And even if you're not taking a break, like our fitness, our abilities, they ebb and flow over time. And it's something that both myself and my husband have had to keep in mind because we're getting back into training. We're on the trainer again. We're trying to be more mindful about spending less time working and more time really dedicating energy to our fitness. And it's hard because whenever you get back into training, you just want to start off where you left off. Like this was my power or this is how long I was able to ride. And it just doesn't work that way. So you just have to start where you are and take it one day at a time. And that's not always easy, but just repeating that message to yourself every single day really helps you stick with it. That way you don't get discouraged. Thanks again for listening to you guys. And thank you again for leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. I've noticed that a few of you have added some extra reviews in there. So if you want to support my work, please feel free to do that. I read every single one of them and I really appreciate it. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.